You are listening to Disc 3 of the series on the elementary principles of the Messiah in Daniel's teaching on the resurrection of the dead, part 2. Enjoy. Welcome to part 2 of the resurrection of the dead. And uh, we covered a lot of ground last week. If you weren't here, uh, you'll have to be brought up to speed sometime. Um, But we covered a lot of ground last week in regard to what happens when the righteous... More specifically, the righteous men die. Okay? What happens to them? And we found that Yeshua himself taught on this very topic. He taught of an epic event. And I want to look at this. John 5.28 Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So Yeshua, Jesus, taught that we shouldn't marvel at this teaching, but rather it's for all of us to understand that there will be a resurrection at the end of days. And this resurrection, in this resurrection, there will be a resurrection of the just, and there will also be a resurrection, as we see here, of the unjust. Okay? What is interesting is that we... Uh, find that this is not the first time that this message was taught. The exact same message was taught in the book of Daniel. Let's look at this, Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered everyone who is found written in the book. This is a reference to the book of life. And many of those who sleep. Now we heard that word last week. It is a reference for the righteous who have died. They get a specific terminology applied to them. And that is sleep. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isn't this exactly what we just read? What Yeshua taught? There's a resurrection of the just. There's a resurrection of the wicked. All those who have died from the foundation of the earth are going to rise again together at the end of the age. For some, it's going to be a time of joy. And for others, it will be a time of mourning. Now, the word is very clear that we are not going to rise until the last trumpet is sounded an event more commonly known as the second coming uh, or the last day, as Yeshua states in this verse. John six thirty nine. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Right? He's talking about his children. When are they raised? At the last day, verse 40. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The last day is going to be a great blessing for all those written in the Lamb's book of life. Not only is it a day where the righteous are joined to the Lord, but it's also a day where the righteous, they receive their inheritance. The righteous are going to receive a reward. Yeshua says this in Luke 14, 
or, yeah, Luke chapter 14, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Our blessed inheritance, this reward, is tied directly to the great event known as the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the just, the day of the Lord, the second coming. However, for us to obtain this resurrection, we have to do what he tells us to do. We have to obey his commandments. Therefore, we should be spending our days wisely, not concerning ourselves with the affairs of this life, but focusing on the age to come. Laying up for ourselves treasures that will not die, treasures that will not go away, that will not fade, that will become corrupted, but treasures that exist through eternity. Matthew 16, 27, Yeshua says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So we're going to receive our reward at his coming, at the resurrection of the dead. Now this verse gives us, it, it reveals an element that's very important for you to note pertaining to the second coming. And it is the fact that Messiah is returning with his angels. It is a very significant piece of information for you. And I want you to note it um, because I'm going to come to this in a little bit. But this piece of information is also going to help you form your eschatological understanding. This is all this whole study of the resurrection of the dead, the elementary principles of the Messiah, should be formulating your eschatology. Amen? Revelation 22, 12, Yeshua says, And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Okay? A prophetic event of this magnitude was never intended to be hidden from your eyes. But on the contrary... It was actually for the believers to know and understand, not for them to be divided in knowledge on this subject or to be in the dark. John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, so we see here that Yeshua goes away, and notice it doesn't say that the righteous die and they immediately go to heaven. It says he is coming back for you. You stay here, he is coming back for you. Now I want to show you a passage where the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy that his own death is approaching, okay? And in this discourse, he gives us some deep insight into the resurrection of the dead and when we will obtain a reward. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's interesting, who have loved his appearing. Uh, you remember last week we read Revelation 1-7, right? It said, every eye will see him. He is coming with the clouds. And all the tribes of the earth will what? Mourn. Right? All the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, but not the righteous. We're going to receive our reward that day. 
And uh, it wasn't, what Paul's talking about here wasn't exclusively for him only. This is for us. We all, those who love his appearing, when he appears out of the clouds, will be joyful because it will be a time of reward. Now I want to show you what the word has to say in regard to some prominent men that we know very well who have died and where they are today. I want to look at this. Daniel 12, 13. We'll start with Daniel. And this is what was instructed to Daniel. He says, But you go your way, Daniel, to the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Okay? So he's instructed here, you're going to go rest. And what did we talk about last week? That we would rest, we would sleep in the grave, right? And we will wait for what? The end of days. And this is where we get our inheritance. This is the exact same thing we just read that Paul said to Timothy, right? He's going to rest in the grave till the second coming. Now I want to look at uh, a couple other prominent men who have died and what the Bible says about them, where they are. Hebrews 4, 11, 11, 4, I'm sorry. But faith, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts... And through faith, though he is dead, he is dead. This is the writer of Hebrews. He still speaks. Let's go to verse 12. Therefore from one man, this is a reference of Abraham, and him as good as dead, were from many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. This is Peter speaking in Acts. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, these verses aren't ambiguous at all, right? In any way, David is both dead and buried. Abel is dead. Abraham is as good as dead. But having said this, we have also read in Scripture that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Meaning we know and believe with all our heart that though these men are dead, they will rise at the second coming. Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, I want you guys put this together. Your eschatology is being formulated here through Scripture. But after this, the judgment. So it's appointed for men to die once, but after that, the judgment, right? We need to understand that the world in all its ages, from the very beginning of the age, from Abel, to the very last person that dies at the end of the age, are going to rise together in unison. Is at the judgment that all men everywhere will receive their just due. It is at the judgment that evil men who are not found in the book of life are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Look at what Yeshua says about this judgment that I'm talking about. Matthew 12:40. For as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Listen closely. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation. You need to know that the men of Nineveh predated Yeshua's generation by 800 years. What's he say? He says, 
they will rise up in judgment with this generation, condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. This is amazing, right? They're rising up together. Let's continue. Yeshua doesn't stop there. The great teacher that he is. The queen of the south, meaning Sheba, will rise up in judgment with this generation. That's another 150 years past Jonah. We're talking multiple generations, multiple ages, all doing what? Rising together. And they're going to judge the wicked. All right? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Okay, so if we would just, if we would just let Scripture <laughs> formulate our eschatology rather than fictional books such as Left Behind, I believe that the end times, they'd be far less complex for us to understand. Amen? The Bible is not elusive in regard to how this is all going to play out, how this is going to happen. Remember, your information that you get is only as good as your source. So what is your source? Now, I promised last week that I would address some of the potential questions that are looming in regard to the resurrection of the dead and what happens when we die. And if I get through today somehow, and I don't answer your question, feel free to come, come back up to me. But it looks as though... Uh, as I was finishing, trying to finish up my sermon, that we may even run into next week as well. Um, we'll be talking about the eternal judgment next week. But for whatever reason, if I get to the point I didn't answer your question, feel free to come up to me afterward. Now, one of the more popular questions, I've, I've, I've done this study a lot, and you get questions, and this is why I'm preemptively making this strike, and hopefully I answer them. One of the questions that I've gotten in the past was, well, okay, well, what about when... Jesus was hanging on the cross and he promised the thief that he would be with him in paradise that day. How do you answer that? That's a good question. Let's look at this. Luke 23, 43. And Yeshua said to him, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Okay? I'm going to read this again. And Yeshua said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, most likely your Bible is going to read similar to this translation that I have up here, which is New King James. But regardless of what translation you're going to use, you're going to find that the translators, they all put the comma right here, right after you. They all put the comma right after you before the word today. And it's important you note this, because the comma, which was added to the text, is the key to understanding the verse in this most accurate form. Now remember, punctuation marks such as the comma, the comma is a written symbol. It doesn't correspond to the sounds, okay? To the sounds of a spoken language. It doesn't correspond to the words of a written language, okay? The point of a comma is to organize, is to clarify the sentence. To organize and clarify for your understanding. It's supposed to give us a greater understanding of the text, okay? But the problem is the rules of the punctuation mark and how they are used, they vary with location, with time, with the translator. They have the liberty of taking it upon themselves to do this, okay? You will not find the comma in the original Greek verse. In the Greek, it doesn't exist, all right? So since the comma was added to bring clarity, 
But in this situation, we find it is going to do just the opposite. It brings confusion. Now, what I'm about to show you, and I want to show you something here, um, how a comma directly affects your understanding, though we did not add a word, not add a letter, nor take away a word or letter. And you will see how dangerous these things are. Just like I was talking to you about when we were in chapter 2 of the Greek words, the conjunctions, how they can change your ideology, your theology really quick. So I want to look at this. I put both up here, side by side. The top one here says exactly what we just read. And, and Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, what, what does the comma institute? It institutes a pause. Surely I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now read the one below where I move the comma. <laughs> Yeshua said to him, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see the difference here? This is amazing. I didn't add a word. I didn't take away a word. But now it reads accurately. It reads exactly with all these other Bible verses we put together. It reads correctly. Now before you get too nervous and you start thinking that I'm just moving commas anywhere I want to do just to prove a point, there are two things that I want to point out. And the first thing is I want to look in this verse, I want to look at the Greek word for today. Look at this. It is the Greek word samaron, okay? 22 times it is translated this day. 22 times. 18 times we see today once this. So we see that it's really this day. And it can mean today. Now I want to go back and look at this. And I have the comma up there for you. The second thing I want you to notice in this verse is you need to consider Yeshua's statement in and of itself. Okay? What he stated. What he promised. Okay? In the literal. And do we actually believe, if we take it according to how the translators gave it to us, do we actually believe that that thief was in heaven with Yeshua that day? Well, that can't be, because John 20, 17, Yeshua presents himself to Mary, and he says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Three days later. So, one of two things. Either Yeshua lied... Or the translators might have put the comma in the wrong spot. Okay? I believe that Yeshua didn't lie. He can't lie. He is not a man. It's important that when you read Scripture, and this is a great example of how cautious you must be when you approach the Word of God. It is imperative that you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? Another question I have received in the past on the dead as well, what about the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah appeared with the Messiah in the garden, right? And uh, what's the deal with that? So, I, Moses and Elijah are actually very easy to answer. There's clear explanations for both. And with Elijah, it's extremely easy. Elijah never died. We, Second Kings talks about, I think chapter 2, it talks about Elijah. What, what did the Lord do? He sent for him. Okay, <laughs> so he sent for him, and what happened? Elijah goes up to heaven. He never tasted death, 
Okay? So seeing him at the transfiguration, it's not a shocker. But what is the deal with Moses and how did Moses get there? Because Scripture records that Moses died. And I want to look at this recordation. Because this is a good question. What was Moses doing at this transfiguration? So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So we know for a fact, the scripture clearly states, Moses died. So what was he doing at the transfiguration? Jude 1.6 tells us, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring reviling accusation uh, against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Okay, so the Bible tells us that Moses was taken, and the Lord didn't just send anyone to come and get him. He sent Michael, the archangel, now remember that significant piece of information I wanted you to note. I wanted you to remember that Yeshua is coming with the clouds with his angels. This is very important. Just as we've seen Michael the archangel come for Moses. Okay? I want to look at this because this is how it's going to go down at the end of the age. Have your eschatology uh, start to formulate. Then the, son, uh, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's amazing. Revelation said the same thing. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. It will be the angels of God coming to get us on that day. Now, the most popular question that I have gotten in the past is, and this is the one that typically believers develop their entire eschatology based upon this verse and their understanding of the dead. And it is found in 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, on chapter 5. And he says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, most of us at some point have heard someone say that, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? This is an example, this is a perfect example of what I call micro-biblical texting. And what do I mean? I mean someone creating an entire theology out of one verse by reading into the text rather than drawing out of the text in a hermeneutic fashion. There is a difference. If we read the passage in its entirety we're going to find that the verse is talking about being absent from our earthly tent. Mortality. Inheriting immortality. You see what I'm saying? So having said this, I want to look at the entire passage. Verse 1, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, for, 2 Corinthians. For we know that if our earthly house, he already starts off here, don't lose Paul. Our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Clothed. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we 
who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. This isn't the only time Paul says this. This is amazing. What you have is mortality versus immortality. Corruptible versus incorruptible. Okay? Let's continue. Verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, which is the flesh, this earthly tent, we are absent from the Lord. That makes perfect sense. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present to the Lord. Paul is crying out, I want my body of immortality. Nobody can present themselves in front of the Messiah in flesh and blood. He cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. You must be immortal to stand in the presence of the Most High. Verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must, listen to this, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat. Right? We talked about the judgment. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now remember, this passage is taken from Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. Now you need to know, the Corinthians were already well taught. They were well versed. They had a great understanding of the resurrection of the dead. The Corinthians, when reading this passage in Paul's second letter, they would not have read it or understood it the way people do today. And just to give you a little insight into what I'm talking about, I want to go to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians and look at exactly what he said to them far earlier. Look at what he says. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have what? Fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Messiah the firstfruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming. When? At his coming. Look around you, has he returned? No, the dead are still in their graves. Let's continue. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Could Paul use any more analogies? I mean, this is ridiculous. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became the life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This is just one analogy after another. I mean, if you don't get this after this discourse, and this is what I'm trying to point out, 
So the first Corinthians had a very clear understanding of what happens when we die. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, Now this I say, brethren, listen closely. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, because we're in the dirt, taking a dirt nap, but we shall all be changed. When? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Okay? O death, where's your sting? O Hades, where's your victory? What's interesting is, is think about this for a second. This is, this is just a countless number of analogies. And Paul's making sure that the Corinthians understand this. He spends so much time on this. It is important for you to understand the resurrection of the dead. Make no mistake. But one thing I want to point out here is it says, Death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? Death is swallowed up in victory. Well, look around you. Paul is referring to immortality state. He is referring to the resurrection of the dead in the statement because death is not destroyed. People are dying today. Go to a hospital. Death is not yet destroyed. Listen to what Paul says in, the next, in, in verse 26. He says, The last enemy that is destroyed is death. Okay? You see this? If we would just let the Spirit of God teach us, rather than left-behind books, we would be in a much better place today. Now, the last question I'm going to cover today, and I'm almost done here, it's more of an obscure question, really, um, than compared to the others. Uh, but someone asked it, so I'm going to address it. And it's actually found in Revelation. It's where we find the fifth seal being opened, and, uh, opened up. And it says in Revelation 6-9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... Okay, first of all, you need, I need to point this out. He saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. An altar, what is at the altar? The sacrifice, right? But what is at the side and under the altar? The blood. If you are in the temple, they put the blood, they pour out the blood on the side of the altar, okay? You need to know this, okay? So when he's reading this, he understands exactly what's going on here. So as John's reading this, so... Um, I saw under the altar the souls who have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And listen to what happens here. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? Why? Because they were martyred. They were killed. They were sacrificed on those who dwell on the earth. Now it appears when you look at this that there's souls in heaven. And this was the individual's question to me. is like, well, it's apparent to me that there's, there's souls in heaven. Well, I mean, he, he, one thing you need to know, number one, Revelation is an allegorical book. You're not to read it in the literal sense. You, find, you get in trouble really quick. It is an allegorical book. It is one parable sown after another. Okay? One parable after another. The majority of what is written cannot be read in the literal sense. Okay? And the other thing to note is I, I don't see anywhere else in Scripture where there's going to be any souls crying out in heaven except for joy. 
there will be no remembrance of the former things. Okay? And here we see they're calling out for judgment. They're calling out for judgment. So we know judgment hasn't even occurred. Right? They're saying when you avenge. Well, judgment hasn't even happened yet. Okay? I think you'll find it ironic that understanding this verse... We, which is the last book of the Bible this, this, in this book, Revelation, this passage, uh, we're going to go to the first book of the Bible to actually understand this better. And I want to look at this. Genesis 4.8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, killed him. What just happened? He was sacrificed. He was killed. Okay? Sounds just like what we read in Revelation. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now listen to what is said. And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Okay? Does this look familiar with what we just read? Literally, the blood is crying out. Now, Abel's not in heaven. His blood cried out to our Lord. But Abel's not in heaven. How do we know Abel's not in heaven? We read it today. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith. Though he is dead, he still speaks. The blood is an allegorical statement. It does cry out, the Lord knows his children, and he knows those who are slain for his testimony. We're going to stop here for today, so the music team can come back up. And we're going to continue next week uh, a little bit in the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to cover a passage. And then we're going to get into the eternal judgment of the wicked, uh, which will also help you formulate an eschatology.